Good afternoon, church. I just feel much more comfortable. All right. Um, so one of my favourite movies when I was uh, growing up was the film Hook. You ever seen the film Hook? Yeah, you know that one. My kids are now into this film. Um, and I, I don't know, I watched that film over and over again. And, and, and I loved the idea behind it, right? Because it's a bit like a, a kind of a rebirth. So there's a guy, if you haven't seen the film, Robin Williams, and, and you know, brilliant actor, absolutely brilliant, very tragic uh, to see him uh, gone. But he's a guy in the film, and he was Peter Pan, right, when he was younger. And he gets uh, older and becomes a lawyer, gets sucked up into the world, in busyness, etc., etc. And it's quite a tragic film, to be honest, for the first, you know, third or so, as he's, he's getting these phone calls and he's not spending time with his kids and all this kind of stuff. But then he goes back on this kind of uh, uh, journey back to Neverland, is it Never Neverland or Neverland? And he remembers who he was and he kind of, you know, it's the kind of rebirth or whatever and a coming of age again and all this stuff. And, uh, but it's, 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 it reminds me, I think, of life as you get a bit older. I was joking with the students I teach the other day and uh, Raquel and I have been watching this film and I still think of myself as kind of mid, yeah, mid to late 20s. But we were joking the other day, in three years' time, I'm going to be 40 years old. And Raquel keeps saying to me, yeah, you know. But, you know, it's, I know, hard to believe. I know, I, I, you're too kind. But, but the older that you get, it, it, I, know, I, I find it harder and harder to think of taking risks. The older and older you get, the stronger the pressures are to be conservative. I mean, not politically conservative. If you catch me voting conservative, you can shoot me there and then. But... <laughs> I'm a lecturer in politics. I have the right to say I will never vote Tories. So there's some things I know nothing about. You know, medicine, etc. I'll leave to the other doctors, but I know about politics. And well, I'm surprised I vote at all. Anyway, but the older that you get, the, the, the stronger the pressures to be conservative with a small C, to be to kind of withdraw, if you like. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. I've got two points. Point number one: the famine, and point number two: the feast. Because I want to talk today about giving God more room to act and to move. God is always, we, we, don't, we don't cause God to act. Right? That's not our role. Our role, though, is to take steps of faith, if you like. To see what God has already been doing. Uh, I want to share with you one of my favourite passages, which starts at the end of 2 Kings 6, if you want to be uh, turning there. And it's one of those passages, you can probably uh, relate uh, to you know, various Old Testament passages. I have gone back to this one over and over and over again over the years. Not simply because of, you know, it's, it's an interesting period in Israel's history and there, there's all that kind of stuff. But I think there is such a clear choice here between the kind of conservative, drifting away lifestyle, on the one hand, that leads to the famine, and the other one which is a kind of a risk-taking, faith-based life that leads to the feast. And I want to I talk about that a little bit today. So if you want to turn with me to 2 Kings 6, we'll start in verse 24. It's a long passage, I'll just ask you to bear with me a little bit. We'll go back to, to some of it in a minute or two. So 2 Kings 6, starting in verse 24. It says, Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. So the siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver 
and a a quarter of a cab of seed pods, or you may have something else there, we'll come back to in a minute, of dove's dung, for five shekels. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, Help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, If the lord does not help you, where can I get help from? From the threshing floor, from the wine press? And then he asked her, What's the matter? She answered, This woman said to me, Give up your son so we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So he cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, Give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked, and they saw that under his robes he had a sackcloth on his body. He said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, If the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. The king sent a messenger ahead, but before he arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold it shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him. While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him. The king said, This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Elisha replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha. But you will not eat any of it. We'll stop there. It's a pretty tragic period in Israel's history. There's a lot of stuff going on. We're not going to go into all of that now. But Israel divided and the northern kingdom, which was Israel, had basically drifted over generations, drifted from God. And this king here, the king of Israel, is King Joram. And and it had many chances. There were many things done by Elisha before this where God was trying to get his attention. Miracles that he had seen, that he had lived, that were witnessed right in front of him. And God had been trying to say to him, turn back to me. Turn back to me. But it got so severe that the king of Aram came and laid siege to them. And the siege got so severe that people were starving to death. So they're talking about two pretty grim types of food here before we even get to cooking our sons. A donkey's head. I can't imagine that there's actually any meat on a donkey's head that would be worth eating anyway. It's one of the least desirable foods I can imagine eating. But then it says in this version, a cab of seed pods. In in your version, it may say a a dove's dung. And there's a lot of debate about, you know, when the scholars, what what was this? I mean, you know, there's no clear, the the word in Hebrew I've written down is dibyonim, which could actually be dove's dung, as in bird's poop. They tend to think it was a particular type of seed, like a particularly bitter type of seed. I mean, the kind of thing that you really, I don't know what, aniseed is not particularly nice, but some people like aniseed, but something particularly grim and nasty to taste. And it was selling for a bomb. People were starving. I mean, for me, probably my least favorite food is Brussels sprouts, right? Dare I ask for a show of hands, who likes Brussels sprouts? Oh my goodness. I know you don't. My, I know she doesn't. Anyway, I, Raquel's trying to convince me to tell the kids that we, we, we should eat Brussels sprouts, but 
I, I used to say they were the spawn of Satan when my mum used to give them to me at Christmas. Uh, I used to, they're, they're horrible things. I, I, I ate Brussels sprouts. My dad used to eat them like sweets, right? At Christmas dinner, he'd kind of just, and he'd do it to, to antagonise us. Like he knew that we hated just watching and the smell of them. So he'd just kind of pop them. They're horrible. Do you like, you, you don't like them? I hate them. I really, there's not many things I really don't like. Brussels sprouts. But anyway. But whatever it was, imagine your worst possible food. Imagine the worst thing, the thing that you would not eat. And they were paying an absolute bomb for it because of this siege. And then it gets to the point where they're eating and devouring each other's sons. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what conditions must have been like to actually cook and eat your son. But God had promised this. God had promised in Deuteronomy 28.53 that if the people drifted from him, this is what would happen. This is the kind of thing that would happen. What was the point with the, the famine? It was to get their attention. It wasn't God being vindictive. It was God trying to get their attention. And he gets to the point where the king curses God. He says, this is God's fault. Why? I've been waiting for God. I don't quite what he thought. He, you know, he didn't take any responsibility for his part in it at all. How did they get there? Well, over generations, they had slowly, gradually drifted from God. You know, it's easy to blame the kings. If you read through 2 Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, there's a lot of stuff written about the kings, but the truth is the people were pretty complicit in it too. The people had drifted from God. You know, they'd built for themselves a northern temple. Rather than travel all the way down, there was no particular reason, they were kind of sectoral, but, but you know, rather than travel to the original temple in Jerusalem, they built for themselves a northern temple. They'd also set up high places where they could go and offer sacrifices. So there was all this stuff that was going on, and God had said to them, that's not, that's not how I want things to be. There should be one temple. There were reasons for that. There should be one temple. You shouldn't have the high places. You shouldn't worship other gods, other idols. But gradually over time, they drifted. You know, I think they'd sought safety over sacrifice. They'd sought conformity gradually over time, over risk. Someone suggested, hey, look, it's a long way to Jerusalem. Why don't we build a local temple? And so that's what they they did. They sought familiarity, I think, over time, over risk and over faith. Familiarity over faith. Because it takes faith to actually question and to ask, what is God's will to keep seeking it? You know, there's, a, 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 again, a fairly tragic verse in Jeremiah 2.13. You might want to write down. But the prophet writes, he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And number two, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. It's God's way of saying, look, you've drifted from me, number one, is one thing, but then you've gone and dug yourself your own cistern. You, you, you've, you've, you've tried to create your own kind of mad-made traditions and, and things that, but they don't hold water. Imagine, I can't imagine anything, if you, if you were trying to hold water, anything more frustrating than digging a pit in the ground. There's that film, The, the Water Divine. Have you seen that film? With Russell Crowe, where he's a, I don't know, he's an Australian guy, and he tries to find water in the ground. But there's one scene where he digs this pit and he's down there, and it's, I don't know, it's almost the depth of, of the screen. It's huge, and he's down there at the bottom, and he's shoveling things out, and he goes to the top and lifts it out. He's convinced there's water at the bottom, and sure enough, he hits water, and it fills up this, this well. But I can't imagine anything more frustrating than actually digging a well to hold water, and your water just seeps 
away having put all that effort into something that just cannot hold water. And that's what God was saying to them. They had drifted, they filled their lives with loads of other things. You know, I think life can become like that for us. You know, if you're visiting today, the Bible says there's lots of things that you can fill your life with. It's very rare to have an empty life where you're just going to sit there in a void. Like, we all fill our lives with things. And the point God's trying to make with this passage is, you can fill your life with some things that are not part of God's plan. Things that distract us from God. It doesn't have to be outright kind of, you have to be breaking and entering and grievous bodily harm and that kind of stuff. Just things that are not healthy for us. You know, like I said, I, I teach on campus and, and I'm very aware. If you're a student here today, let me talk to the students for a minute or two. Like, there are some things for students which, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're outright, they're very clear kind of sins, right? You know, and, and, they're, and they're very flagrant on campus. Anyone who's been back to campus recently, it's a pretty, it's a pretty worldly place to be. You know, the clothes people wear, the things that they get involved in. And, 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 and I remember being a student and the temptations to just get sucked in the worldly parties, the stuff that our friends are doing around us, even just fitting in with our worldly mates. You know, I, I think that, I, I don't know there's many, I mean, I've, I graduated from a first degree 16, 17 years ago. I, I don't think there's any period in my life where that, those temptations are so in your face. I mean, working in an office is one thing, and, you know, with a small group of people, but to be surrounded by 25,000 other students who are all basically living one particular way, and you are one of two or three trying to stand out and make a difference, is, is tough. That's tough. But I also think, as students, we can still get distracted by things. Not necessarily sinful things. It could be studies. I know some of us are very diligent students. It could be studies. Right? There's still things that we can fill. It could be clubs, societies. I had this one student, I'm, I'm, she's my, I'm her personal tutor. And we have this conversation every term where she comes along and she goes, I didn't do as well in my essays last year, last term. I, I know what I need to do. And I say, right, what, you know, what is it this time? And she kind of says, well, I've, I've taken on this society activity. So she's involved in the, the student TV channel or something like that. And I said, how long does that take each week? And she says, it's about 20 to 25 hours I spend on the student TV channel. And I, I kind of said, whoa. And, and then she said, and then I got a job because I needed to pay. That doesn't, doesn't pay any bills. That's just a society. She said, then I got a job. And I said, what's the job? She said, I'm working in some, uh, it was a Chinese restaurant last time. She's changed now. It's a, a nightclub or something now. And I said, how many hours is that? She said, it's 13 to 15 hours each week, but I take on extra shifts. And I was like, whoa, wh- when do you work, you know? And she said, I know, I know. But we have this conversation regularly. She hasn't, as far as to date, I don't think she's done an awful lot about it. Now, neither of those things are they're not sinful things per se, but they can be things that just, they fill your life up. They can distract us. Let me talk to the marrieds, the, the mature people, the marrieds, and the parents for a second or two. Because I think the complexities of life, like I said before, they just get, they get tougher and more consuming the older we get. I mean, it'd be easy for me, and, 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 and I kind of tell myself this lie regularly, and I kind of go, it's because our kids are little. When they get a bit older, life will get a bit simpler. <laughs> At which point you say, yeah, right. If only, yeah. Keep on telling myself. That gets me through the night anyway, right? So. But you see, my, my, I feel like my biggest challenge right now, and I, I don't know if this is very helpful, this is, this is how my mind kind of works anyway, so let me... 
Have you read the book, the Stephen Covey book, you know, Seven Habits of Effective People? All right. And he distinguishes between, not the red zone stuff, the red zone stuff might be sinful struggles or whatever, those kind of things, you know, anger, conflicts, lust, sin, whatever. But there's, life I think is made up of a lot of the other stuff. Right, which might look something like this. And he distinguishes between urgent stuff, and it's good that he calls it urgent stuff. Like if he called it redundant, pointless, useless stuff, it would be quite dismissive because it takes up a big portion of our life. That's not the point. It is. It's urgent, pressing stuff. But the trouble is it can consume us, right? And then he says that there are important things. There are things which are... Like if I was to put that differently, I would say the urgent things are short-term things. They're the things that come at us, you know, rapid fire. And it's so easy to get filled up with dealing with the urgent things. I think that when he's talking about important things, they're kind of longer-term things. They're things that really matter. I went through and just was kind of trying to think about, you know, what what goes into the urgent stuff? What is it? Somehow I found myself dealing with three, being responsible for 390 students this year. I'm not quite sure how in different capacities. And... You would not believe the, well, the Scott would, the amount of emails that come through from people at odd hours of the day and night. This is just for me, maybe you can relate to, you know, bedtime routines. Takes an awfully long time. I don't know if that's just our kids or, or what. Food shopping. That's not necessarily something I do. I'm just trying to kind of generalize a little bit. But <laughs> I help out. I'm a, I'm a 20th century, 21st century man. I do a bit of cooking now and again. Food shopping, right? The kind of things that we... These are important things. I'm not sure about Facebook updates, but maybe. You know, the last thing you do before you go to bed at night, Facebook updates. If you're on Facebook now, then uh, housekeeping, work deadlines, travel to and from work. You, You could probably add numerous other things. I mean, just work in and of itself is often, it's filled with urgent stuff, right? This is life. This is, and they are urgent things. You know that email. We have deadlines at work. You have to respond to student emails within two working days, or we're in trouble, right? Which is, you know, that's okay. That's fine. This is, this is, this is, this is the world we live in. This is the the jobs that we have, and, and we praise God for our jobs. I mean, they're good things, right? But the trouble is, we can we can spend our lives, and, and actually, either it can be so distracting this stuff. Or actually, beyond that, it's just simply that we're so burnt out that we have so little left to give. What goes into the important things? What are the longer-term things that so often... You know, this last week I had to travel to Luxembourg for work for a couple of days, and I came back, and then I was a little bit sick on the Wednesday, etc. Raquel was spending some good time with the kids, and I couldn't do that, and I was caught up with work and things. And, and I felt convicted. I went out on Thursday morning, I was praying about it, and thinking, you know, it would be so easy for me to fill every work, every spare moment with one of the urgent things, and just, and just miss out. I value my kids, I do, but it'd be so easy for me to just forget about spending the quality time that they need. Encouraging other disciples, finding time to actually give to the other disciples. Hospitality, opening our home. Quiet times, devotional, time with God, time to study our Bible and pray. You know, Senya was talking about that last week. And teaching the Bible to other people. You know, one of the things I love about the church, the way that we believe the church should be, is we don't believe, do you remember that diagram we drew about the, 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 when we first studied discipleship, where there's a, a preacher and he has this church and he's a very effective preacher, but he's the one constantly preaching to two or three hundred people. We don't believe churches like that. And, and, and that really, I've grown up in churches like that, but we believe that every single member of the church can be 
a leader, if you like, in the sense that they can lead Bible studies. They can study the Bible with other people. But those are important things. But life can get so crammed with other stuff. And like I said, the older we get, I think those challenges to settle down just become more and more and more strong, or stronger and stronger. You know, there's a story told of a, a, a Roman aqueduct. And it lasted for, I don't know, 2,000 years, I think. Something like, you know, the, that vicinity. And, but it was still in use. Water was still flowing through it. Right? And it was amazing. It was renowned. And people around it, were there, you know, people, they were so proud of this thing. This is an amazing feat of engineering. 2,000 years old or thereabouts. Still with water flowing through it. It's incredible. But then the decision was made. This, this is too much a part. Of, it's too important to let the water going through it, etc., destroy it. We, we need to preserve it. So they stopped the water going through it. Now this thing had lasted with water going through it without problems, you know, little repairs, etc. But for 2,000 years, as soon as they stopped the water going through it, within a year or two, the thing started to crumble and to fall apart. I don't know why exactly that was. I don't know the kind of technical reasons. But I just think it's interesting that somehow this thing had lasted with water going through it for so long. And I do think there's a lesson for us you know, in life there. You can't stand still as a disciple. There's so many pressures, like I said, to kind of just, you know, leave Christianity to the young folks. You guys. <laughs> but it's not like that. You can't sit still as a disciple. And you know, verse 33, God sent the siege and the famine to get their attention. Let me ask you a couple of questions before we move on to the, to the feast. What in your life requires faith? What in your life requires faith? What do you really need to depend on God for? You know, second question, are your prayers more about, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer? Are your prayers more about the, Lord, give me my daily bread, meet my daily needs, I'm so troubled by my daily needs, or do we kind of remember the first part? Well, the first part of the Lord's Prayer is all about, God, bring your kingdom through my life, through my actions, through my lifestyle. Which part of that do we focus on? For me, you know, I'm so often concerned about the kind of daily bread needs. God doesn't want us to live joyless, dull, self-reliant, safe lives. You know, to have a relationship with God is all about walking by faith, right? And I, I, I honestly think that you, to live by faith, you either live by faith or we don't live at all. We either live by faith or we don't truly live at all. Go back to the passage and, and we'll finish up the, uh, the story in Second uh, Kings 7 verse 3. Think in 7 verse 3. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say, we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. If we stay here, we'll die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. Sounds like a reasonable choice to me. You're going to die somehow. All right. At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. 
For the Lord had caused uh, the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to each other, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. Then they returned and entered another tent and took some of the things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, what we're doing here is not right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, we went into the Aramean camp and no one was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported to the palace. The king got up in the night and said to his servants, said to his officers, uh, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we're starving. So they have left the camp to hide in the countryside thinking uh, they will surely come out and then we will take them alive and get into the city. One of the officers answered, have some uh, men take five of the horses that are left in uh, in the city. Their plight will be like that of the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all the Israelites who are doomed. It's funny how discouragement and faithlessness kind of spreads, doesn't it? You know, the king's faithlessness kind of spread to his men as well. So let us send them out to find out what has happened. So they selected two chariots with their horses and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan and they found the whole road strewn with the clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in the headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a seer of the finest flour sold for a shekel and two seers of barley sold for a shekel as the Lord had said. Now the king had put uh, uh, the officer on whose arm he leaned in charge of the gate. And the people people trampled him in the gateway and he died, just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. It happened as the man of God had said to the king, about this time tomorrow a seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? The man of God had replied, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And this is exactly what happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gateway and he died. You know, it's an interesting end to this story, right? Not, not this bit in particular, but the, the, the lepers. Because the lepers were probably the worst affected by the famine. They were living outside of the city or at the city walls, city gates. And they would typically live on the scraps that came from the city. This is what they would do. They would forage for food, the scraps that came from the city. Well, if there's no food in the city, they literally had nothing. And they were, you know, in a sense, they were more aware of what was going to come their way than perhaps the people in the city. Perhaps the people in the city kind of thought, well, I don't know, maybe we can carry on cooking our children or something like that. These four guys, they had nothing. They knew, basically, what was their choice? We stay here, we die. We go in the city, we die with them. We go to the Arameans, we might die. Maybe not, we don't know. They had nothing to lose. What happens? So they go to the camp of the Arameans. Did they, did they create this great victory? Did they fight this great battle? No. They did nothing. They just turned up and saw what God had already done. You know, it's funny that, that I think comfort sometimes blinds us. It blinds us. I think sometimes it gives us a false sense of, of security. We sometimes think we have more to lose by having lots of things around us. I think that's one of the things that as we get older, you know, it's not just life gets more complicated, but we also have more stuff. We surround ourselves with more things. 
We have more things to lose. We have, you know, houses now, mortgages, all this kind of stuff. And I think risking sounds quite risky. But I think, in a sense, we need to learn to imitate the lepers. There's a lesson for us there. They simply went out, they simply took a risk and saw what God had actually done. You know, I think that's really hard. It's funny, the, 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 the episode that kind of springs to my mind when I was thinking about all this recently was we went on holiday. We had this fantastic holiday this summer to France. And it was great. We went traveling around France with this kind of budget holiday, and, and it, was, it was phenomenal. And we did about 2,000 miles, I think, over two weeks driving around, and our car ran fine. Until the last day coming back. And uh, so we'd been to see, Raquel is an artist, and we went to see Monet's Garden just north of Paris. We were there, it was the Friday afternoon, we were heading back, so we're now 250 miles south of uh, uh, Calais. And so we start heading back to uh, Calais, get in the car, drive out of Monet's Garden, and it's about 3 or 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, our car dies. So dies is a good way of putting it. Anyway, so lights came on that I didn't know existed on the dashboard, what is that? Oh my goodness, there's five of them. You know. um, so we're sitting there, right? And, and, and anyway, long story short, the uh, insurance people were very good and they shipped us back to Britain. Um, and what happened next? Then we had to wait and the car, the garage, that they said that you could look after it. They figured out, they couldn't figure it out, which was bad news for us. So the car had to be shipped to the north of France, to another place, and an Audi garage, right? We kind of thought, okay, you know, the Audi people, it was a car that was given to us. We had a, an Audi car given to us very kindly by someone. So an Audi garage, you'd have thought an Audi car, an Audi garage, they'd figured this one out. So they had the car for 10 days, and they said, we're not entirely sure what's wrong with it, but we think we fixed it. I didn't fill me with confidence right there, but I kind of thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll run with this anyway. So the insurance company then got, flew me back out to France to go collect this car. Uh, a taxi driver, a crazy French taxi driver, and I can say that again because I lived in France and I know crazy French taxi drivers. They drove us to the north of France to this garage three hours in a taxi. Three hours in a taxi. I'm thankful I was not paying for that one. So they drove us to the north of France. It was five o'clock now on whatever day it was, a Wednesday, I think. And they, and they said, okay, you can take your car. And I said, are you sure this is things fixed? They said, yes. And they charged me £600 for telling me, yes, your car is fixed. So we got in the car. I'm not bitter. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I am. Yeah. So I had 130 miles to go from there to Calais. And I thought, okay... You know, I'm praying, God, please, I just want to get home now, right? You know, this is... so, so 60 miles, and the car was running great on the motorway, and I kind of thought, happy days. And then it started to rain, and I don't know what it was, but the car stopped. Well, no, the car didn't just stop. The car stopped four times. The car got to the edge of a, uh, a toll booth. You know, in France, they have those toll roads on the motorway. So I got to one of those, and the car you know, slowed down, and the car just died again. And I thought, that's not good. That is not good. Right, so, so I then I, I sort of pushed it over to the side. This is a motorway, French motorway, right? Pushed it over to the side, sat there, <laughs> called the insurance people. They said, oh, well, you know, don't know what to do. You can't, they can't pick us up on the motorway. The police would have to come. I, I, so I said, right, okay. So I sat there for a while. I got it started eventually. And went another 30 miles, came to the next toll booth, slowed down again. The thing died. I think, All right. Just before the toll booth. So, I, you know, I got really frustrated, if I'm honest. And I, right, I'm not going to sit here and wait for the police for another few hours. So I pushed the car up this hill, through the toll booth, pushed it over the other side. Cars whizzing past me, honking their horns, and everything inside me wanted to do something very ungodly. But I didn't. Um, 
but I pushed it down the hill and, and then I jumped in and started the car and got it going. And so we're going now, okay. God. And then Raquel was calling me and my mum called me and I, you know, I picked up the phone, I put the phone on loudspeaker and I said, okay, I can't talk, I'll speak later, you know, because I just wanted to get to the ferry. So we're going, we're going, we're going. And, 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 and the car's starting to, and every time I come down the hill, the car would start to die again and I'd quickly, you know, fall on the gas and go up the hill and, and then I was overtaking one lorry and I just lost all power and it was just a complete, I don't think I've ever had a more stressful experience in my life. I'm not bitter, I'm not. <laughs> but anyway, so, so the car coasted, there's this lorry going really slowly and I was really trying not to get frustrated, but we're coming down into the port of Calais and arriving at the passport control and I get there and I can see the thing and I'm just thinking, if I can just get through, if I can get through the first gates, then I'm their problem. They can figure it out after that. But the car, like, from here to the back of the room, the car died. And I, and I could not get it started. I, you know, I was, and at that point, I got out of the car and I just prayed. And I was like, oh, I mean, God, I just need to surrender. If I, like, forget the car. If I just have to leave it here. Anyway. So I called the AA people again and they came and they said, well, we, you know, we begged the ferry people. They said, we can't get it on the on the uh, 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 ferry unless you can drive it on you can't get a car on the ferry okay fine so I was quite surrendered actually at that point I, you know, but I was so I hadn't eaten all day I'd had this crazy journey that taken six hours or something like that and, and I was just it was 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night and, and the last thing I wanted to do at this point was to be outward or giving a talk and I was just kind of holding it together and I was kind of like okay so I had to leave the car there again in France and they put me as a foot passenger on the last ferry coming out of midnight or whatever it was, coming out of Calais, and I got on this thing. And you know how this is? You know, you know when you get a kind of just funny kind of prodding in your side from the spirit, and you kind of go, I know. You know. There was this guy who walked into the... There were no foot passengers. They don't allow foot passengers on P&O ferries that late at night. But this guy walked into the ferry, and he was a young guy, and I thought, I bet you he's a British student. I bet you I need to reach out to this guy. And I... I just did, you know, everything inside of me just thought, I do not, I do not want to be outward. I just want to get on the ferry and, I don't know, I don't even know how I'm getting back from Dover at this point, right? He gets, he, we, we catch this taxi, they put us onto the ferry and, and I, you know, I thought, I could just, if I don't say a word to him, I'm, you know, he could just walk off on the ferry and, and, and I'll be none the wiser and I can just, you know, I can hide. But I thought, God, okay, right, you know, I think I need to reach out to this guy, okay, so, so if he's, you know, is he English? So I started talking to him, and sure enough, he was a British student, he just graduated um, from Loughborough University, and it was quite amazing, to be honest, because we had a two-hour waiting for the ferry, on the ferry, I bought him some food, he had no money, been backpacking, had no money left, I bought him some food, we sat there, two hours, we talked, we did a Bible study, it was, it was quite miraculous, to be honest, and, you know, it was just, a, it was very, it was very convicting, because everything in my heart did not want to open my mouth. But it's funny how God puts you in those situations sometimes. I didn't create anything there, I just took a, a, a risk. And I think the big message from all of this is that, uh, this guy, his name's Louis, you can pray for him, he's living in Clapton now, Clapton, no, Clapham, and he said he might be interested in going to church, I've been in touch with him on Facebook and things since. Um, that's not really the point. It's not whether or not he becomes a Christian. It's just that's not our part in a sense. We we just do what God puts in front of us. Yeah. But it's funny. The big message I think for, from all of this, from the passage, is is we've got to take a step out. We've got to sometimes get out of our comfort zones. You know, back in verses twelve and thirteen, it's really interesting because the siege is actually over, but they're still living like they're imprisoned. Isn't that sad? Like the king is so kind of like, he just can't believe the good news. Uh, you know, isn't that a little crazy? But I look at that and I think that's exactly what we can be like in the kingdom sometimes. You know, 
the siege for us is over because of the cross. Right? Think about what Isaiah 25 says about the kingdom of God. You know, Isaiah prophesying, but this is the kingdom that we inherit. He says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine. The best of meats and the finest of wines. He will swallow up death forever. This is Isaiah's prophecy about the kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus brought. It's so easy for us, though, to get, whether it's sucked up with that stuff, whether it's trapped with sin. You know, if you're not a Christian here today, let me encourage you, leave the siege and leave the famine behind. There is a feast that God promises in his kingdom. You know, if you're struggling, if you're struggling with sin or just struggling with the burdens of life, again, let me encourage you, we don't have to live in sieged and in a famine. Let me encourage you to take a step out. You know, I think we have to make some decisions. I'm particularly bad at that. I don't know about you. I'm particularly bad at making decisions after sermons. Do you you know what I mean? You can hear, I'm not saying whether, I'm I'm not asking whether this is a good sermon or not, but the point is simply that I think we need to act upon things that we hear. Whether we're reading our Bibles and there's something that God puts on our heart, whether it's listening to someone else's sermon, I think we need to learn to make decisions again. I want to set before you three practicals, and you can take or leave these. You can screw these up and throw them in the bin. I don't mind afterwards. But there might be suggestions, things that I've thought about over the years. For three uncomfortable situations, three risks you might think about taking. Number one, to give more financially. The room goes silent. (laughs) To give more financially. I, I would say most of us, I don't know your life situation, I don't want to make a judgment on that. But most of us have more than we need. And if that's not your situation, then I, you know, by all means, I hope we can help. But most of us, most of the time, have more than we need. So why not, why not, why not give more financially? Why not make a sacrifice there? Number two, why not take a risk with some work colleagues or neighbors? Why not do something like that? You know, one thing that we're doing with our family group uh, for Selly Oak is what we did last year. We had this uh, fireworks bonfire night. I mean, that's coming up soon. Loads of people, particularly if they've got kids or whatever, they might, they might take their families elsewhere or whatever. But if you initiated one in your area, whether it's in your back garden, we've got a, a patch of kind of a, a small park thing outside our, the front of our house. We did that last year. We had eight or ten neighbors come down with their little kids for a small bonfire thing. Why not do something like that? Do something that you, you can reach out to your neighbors to get to know your neighbors. Number two. And number three. And he, okay, let me, let, me, let, me, let me put this not too bluntly. But why not do good to someone who hates you? Why not do good to someone who hates you? You say, nobody hates me. Okay, well, maybe someone who doesn't particularly like you then. <laughs> I, think there are, I think for all of us, there are people who, they're, they're not that fond of us. Maybe for bad reasons, maybe for good reasons, I don't know. But why not do something for someone else who doesn't particularly like you? I don't know about you, the the way that I react to people who aren't particularly friendly towards me is I often kind of, I just kind of blank them. I'm not outwardly mean to them, you know, I don't gossip about them, I'm not malicious towards them, but I might not actually go out of my way to do something kind for them. Three thoughts, 
Take them or leave them. That's fine. Give more financially. Take a risk with neighbors or do good to someone who's not particularly fond of you. You know, I think this is not just a lesson about faith. There are parallels to the gospel, right? There are parallels to the gospel. God has set a feast in place for us. The victory is won. We don't have to live in the famine anymore. Let me encourage you to find ways to take a step of faith. Amen.